best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everybody, and welcome to March's installment of Blue SciCon. This is the podcast formerly known as Beer with BMSIS. This is the podcast series that features the research, ideas, and philosophies of members and friends of the Blue Marvel Space Institute of Science. Uh, we are trying a slightly different format where we have uh, readjusted our podcast to be a little more conversation-based. Uh, we're looking at trying to use this as a laboratory to test some new ideas get feedback from our audience members and help our authors to uh, maybe get some new ideas on, on things that they've been pondering themselves. Uh, in the tradition of our show, we are not abandoning the monthly beverage. And in fact, we're asking our listeners, the people listening on our podcast, if you would uh, send in any beverage requests to podcast at bmsis.org. So if you've got a tasty beverage from wherever in the world you are, please send us a note. We will do our best to feature your beverage in one of our upcoming episodes, so podcast at bmsis.org. For this month, I'm featuring a very simple beer, one from Pennsylvania. It is the beer of Pennsylvania. It is Yingling. If you've been to Pennsylvania, you've definitely seen Yingling. One of my favorite parts of Yingling is that uh, you can go into any bar in Pennsylvania and order a lager, and they'll know exactly what you mean and give you a Yingling. It's reasonably tasty, very cost-efficient, uh, I'd say it's better than most lagers that I've had. So if you're going to a bar and you've got Yingling, you're not going to have a bad time. That's what I'll say about Yingling. And in the tradition of our show, uh, we ask that you respect the laws of your land and only drink alcohol if you are of legal age. And with that, today's show is titled Winter Safe Deterrence and the Biological Weapons Debate. Uh, we have a conversation with Dr. <sighs> Seth Baum executive director of the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute, and Catherine McLaughlin from Biosecure, uh, director of Biosecure. So we're going to have an interesting conversation about nuclear winter, deterrence, biosecurity, and what some viable options might be for this. So please, Seth, give us an introduction of what this topic's all about. Thanks, Jacob, and thanks for having me here uh, for this conversation. Winter safe deterrence, the basic idea here is that the status quo that exists today around the world in which eight countries have large nuclear arsenals, these countries are France, China, the United Kingdom, the United States, Russia, uh, India, Pakistan, and Israel, uh, have large nuclear arsenals that if used could cause uh, nuclear winter or uh, something in the direction of nuclear winter. The basic idea with nuclear winter is if there is a nuclear explosion, then say burns a, a city or, or another area, the firestorm puts smoke high up into the atmosphere where it goes up past the clouds and stays there for maybe 5, 10, even 20 years. The smoke spreads around the world and blocks incoming sunlight. Because it blocks incoming sunlight, temperatures at the surface get colder, uh, precipitation is reduced, and it becomes generally difficult for plants to grow uh, including the plants that we grow for our food. And so there's, uh, as, as just one data point, one study looked at a nuclear war between India and Pakistan in which a 100 total nuclear weapons were used and found that the famine that follows from that 
could threaten up to around 2 billion people with starvation. That's a really severe catastrophe, and it could even be worse than that because there's you know, additional effects. Uh, there could be disease outbreaks or, or additional conflicts and so on. So that suggests that there should be far fewer nuclear weapons in the world. My, my study did a simple risk analysis of nuclear winter and suggested that we would be safe from nuclear winter if there were no more than about 50 total nuclear weapons worldwide. The problem with that is that the countries that have nuclear weapons, that the eight countries I met, uh, mentioned before, they have these weapons for a reason. And the biggest reason, I think it's fair to say, is for deterrence. That is, using the nuclear weapons to threaten devastating harm to the other side, to persuade the other side to not do one thing or another. And uh, conversations about this sort of major nuclear disarmament often hit dead ends because the countries that have them say, oh, yeah, we agree the consequences are catastrophic. However, that just makes deterrence work even better, and we really need deterrence. It's crucial for our national security, so we're not going to get rid of our weapons. This research is an attempt to bridge this divide where, okay, we can, uh, on one hand, the, the countries can still keep the deterrence that they believe is essential for their national security, and on the other hand, we can avoid a serious global catastrophe uh, from nuclear winter or, or from other weapons. Um, and so you know, I'll note that this project was motivated in part to get uh, these two different communities uh, uh, to talk to each other instead of talking past each other. The two communities on one hand, the people who worry about nuclear winter, which includes the environmental scientists who study it, the humanitarian disarmament community that calls for large uh, uh cuts in nuclear arsenals or even zero nuclear weapons, and also the, the catastrophic risk community, which is where I come from, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the kind of mainstream nuclear policy communities and the nuclear-armed countries that insist that they need large nuclear arsenals for their deterrence. So uh, a core goal of this project is to uh, you know, have a conversation that uh, respects the points that both sides are making and get them kind of talking to each other in a common language. Uh, so it is somewhat ironic that along the way, uh, this research has, has managed to um, uh, upset people from a separate community, that being the <laughs> biological weapons community, because um, in the research, I look at uh, what other weapons might be able to satisfy the deterrence goals of the nuclear-armed countries uh, in ways that don't risk a major global catastrophe. They still risk uh, major destruction, but that's kind of at the, at the heart of the idea of deterrence is threatening major destruction. Uh, so it's still threatening major destruction, just not quite as much destruction, especially at the global scale. Uh, my research looked at a fairly long list of, of candidate weapons uh, and one of them that I suggested uh, might have some some promise, and, and I stress this is uh, just kind of a tentative initial suggestion from what what little analysis I was able to do in in this uh, this first step at the research. Uh, but I suggested that there potentially could be a role for uh, non-contagious biological weapons. Uh, the contagious ones could cause every bit as large of a global catastrophe as as nuclear winter 
would be because they, the contagious ones could spread around the world, at least as, as I understand it. Um, but I said maybe there could be a role for for non-contagious biological weapons, and there has been a, a very strong reaction to that, which I'm sure uh, Catherine will be able to share with us very well. That's yeah, we jumped all over you on that one, I'm afraid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, hi. Sorry, I'm Catherine Lockman. So thank you for organising the discussion. First of all, I just have to say this debate is so especially timely because today is actually the 40th anniversary of the entry into force of the Biological Weapons Convention. So happy birthday, BWC. And so, and also, you know, we, there's the eighth review conference coming up next year in 2016. So basically, we're all considering the kind of current health, current and future health of the treaty. So this is a very timely discussion time of discussion to have and certainly an interesting one to have on the birthday of the of the convention really I mean I guess if I just go through what the sort of I guess in some ways I'm speaking for the biological weapons community but I'm not sure if I'm entirely able to do that for everybody but so basically we sort of have four areas of concern that was prompted by Seth's paper and these relate to the international ban on the use production, development, retention, and spread of biological and toxin weapons, and also the international customary laws that uphold that ban and the norm underneath it. Then we also have quite serious misgivings on the effectiveness of biological weapons as a natural deterrent. There's also further arguments about the proliferation risks associated with actively pursuing a biological weapons capability particularly in view of the dual-use nature of technology that's used to create and to disseminate such weapons and its potential effect on global security and stability. And then lastly, there's also the moral and ethical implications of using such a weapon. So firstly, what really kind of the, the first reaction that we had and certainly that I had was biological and toxin weapons are banned under any and all circumstances un under the Biological Weapons Convention and regardless of whether they're contagious or not non-contagious, which is not necessarily terminology that we in the BW community actually use but it also relates to the, the biological weapons convention is full its full title is biological and toxin weapons convention so these not the non-contagious aspect of, of Seth's paper clearly falls underneath the treaty and is clearly banned uncategorically the suggestion that states could sanction and legitimize pursuing these kind of weapons is tantamount really to repealing, overturning, abrogating this particular treaty, which, you know, also is in the forefront of our mind, bearing in mind the, the birthday of the treaty. And not only that, it's got sort of potentially far-reaching and pretty devastating implications for international treaty law and the norms in the context of all arms control, not just WMD, and for customary international humanitarian law, if, it were, if the BWC were overturned, because it sort of sends the message that Weapons treaties are essentially meaningless. Um, if they can be overturned at will, because it's beneficial to the security of, an, of a nation, what does that mean for every single treaty that's been that's been negotiated? And secondly, is and sort of as a weapon of strategic deterrence, we basically argue that their biological weapons are a very poor choice, and this, in fact, has sort of partially led to the abandonment of pursuing such weapons historically. I'm not going to go through why they're a bad choice. It, it, there's been written very well and very eloquently by better brains than I on the um, Bulletin of Atomic Science Roundtable. But essentially, what we've been saying is that for 
a weapon to be capable of a, of a strategic deterrence, it needs to have an assured capacity to inflict unacceptable damage on adversary. And we just say that biological weapons, as they presently stand, don't have that capability. There's a there's a, there's a good quote by Martin Fromansky, who wrote in response to Seth that he said, to be a credible strategic deterrent, a weapon needs to offer assured unacceptable damage when used in retaliation against an enemy's attack. And later goes on, I think it's him, to say a less deadly deterrent is a less effective t- deterrent. So that's sort of where we're coming from on there. Um, thirdly, we have a problem with bi- the proliferation risks, uh, proliferation horizontal and vertical. It has the sort of legitimizing the weapons, runs the risk of sparking a biological arms um, race amongst states with ever-increasing lethality. Uh, add that to the advances in life sciences. Uh, such as like the influenza game function work or gene drive technology, synthetic, the digital biology. We just sort of we don't know what we could end up with if we if we start going down that path. Um, and also the ease of proliferation through the use of dual use, um, for the dual use nature of much of the technology that's um, that's used in the life sciences. And then lastly, there was a big strong reaction just on the ethical moral grounds, kind of just regarding replacing one indiscriminate weapons system with another. Uh, regardless of its util- utilitarian motive, and and basically, customary international law is just going to kind of fall apart if we base our actions on the idea that the end justifies the means. So that was rather long. I'm really sorry, but they were basically like the four points that we've all been kind of talking around and and um, spitting back out at Seth with uh, great regularity. Thank you both. That's a really great uh, overview to this. And I just wanted to interject that, you know, while we continue this conversation, uh, everybody else, please feel free to chime in with some questions. Uh, you can feel free to ask with audio or you, there's a chat box you can type some questions into. Um, and then I also circulated a list of a few preliminary discussion questions. And you guys have covered uh, actually some of this territory already, so we don't need to necessarily uh, hash out these questions exactly. But um, Seth, one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, as you maybe you know, respond to some of the things Catherine said, are, you know, for people who aren't as familiar with with nuclear war, nuclear winter, like this is bad. You know, a lot of nuclear weapons could cause bad climate catastrophes, but also a lot of other destruction that might well be way worse than any climate catastrophes. So, you know, the question is, there are other reasons to care about nuclear disarmament other than nuclear winter. And perhaps, you know, is deterrence for the sake of avoiding nuclear winter really that important that it might be worth going to the extreme of using biological weapons instead? Because in the end, if you end up using these, you're going to get mass destruction no matter what. Yeah, no, this is a, a very good question. First, I want to say in response to, to Catherine's points, one interesting aspect of the, the reaction from, from uh, the biological weapons community is they're making a lot of points that I really agree with. And it's it just, these are very difficult issues that could potentially lead to some uncomfortable conclusions that, you know, I'm certainly not happy with. I, I want to be clear for the record, I don't like biological weapons. I, I, I'm very happy that these, these weapons are banned by international treaty and that, that there are strong uh, norms against the use of biological weapons. I think that's a, a very good thing uh, that, that makes the world a lot safer. Um, now, I, especially because this is Blue Marble Space podcast, 
I want to uh, maybe provide a little bit of perspective of why I really do think that some consequences, some types of, of mass destruction really are significantly more, more massive, more important than others, such that we should feel comfortable making this sort of trade-off. Then, you know, I agree, ideally, there would be you know, no, no destruction of any sort. But if we do have to choose, I think the argument or the, the case is very clear that we should choose to, to the extent that we can, avoid destruction that would threaten the entirety of global human civilization. The reason for that is that if you know, the entirety of global human civilization is threatened, that's not just the you know, billions of people that are alive today, but it's the countless members of countless future generations that could exist for billions of years or trillions of years into the future. And that that consequence just vastly outweighs you know, anything else really that if we really do care about everyone's lives including the lives of people in future generations then we need to make sure that we do not uh, do anything that would cause this sort of major permanent harm to, to human civilization and so we've seen you know any number of, of terrible tragedies that have caused even even millions of deaths over the years including uh, major wars over the last century uh, that human civilization is still here, and so you know the rest of us do get to, uh, you know, continue enjoying our lives. In comparison, if there is a sufficiently large nuclear war, then that might not happen. That might not be the case. We might we might all, uh, uh, you know, be denied the the chance to to continue living or, or to ever live in the first place for future generations. And so while this is an extremely difficult moral issue. Uh, I do feel that we should, to the extent possible, avoid putting ourselves in a situation where a, a failure of deterrence could end you know, everything for everyone. I, I was just wondering that, I mean, in terms of, of, of biological weapons and the, and the convention and the, the, the ban on it, how would you, if, um, say we had this um, hypothetical discussion about, as you know, and these are all hypothetical risks, how would you um how could you envisage this actually it actually happening and 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 states kind of accepting and assimilating non-contagious biological weapons into their actual arsenals i mean in terms of the international norm and the and the international treaty law have you have you given any thought to how that uh, you know how states would actually go about doing that i regret to admit i've done very given very little thought to that I, I recognize it as being a really huge issue, and and I share the the concerns that that Catherine's articulated about what this would mean, not just for the the bans and norms against biological weapons, but for the international treaty system as a whole. Uh, and potentially that problem right there could uh, make the make the world even less safe than it is now, uh, such that even to, that we would actually be better off keeping the, the status quo uh, uh, catastrophic risk from, from large nuclear arsenals than we would be to switch away. Um, because potentially, if we lose, if the world loses confidence in international treaties, that could lead to even worse catastrophes. Mm. Heck, maybe it could even, for all we know, could make uh, uh, nuclear war more likely, in which case the, the whole thing is, is counterproductive. Uh, 
I don't have good answers to that question. I also don't have good answers to the question of uh, how we might go about doing it. This is um, when I when I say that this is kind of initial preliminary research. I really mean it. There are big questions here that would need to be addressed, uh, you know, to to some degree of satisfaction before we could uh, seriously consider uh, actually recommending moving forward on these as as, as world policy. In the comments section, Jake, you said there's a comment and a question. Looks like we have a comment from Sanjoy. Hi, Catherine and Seth. Thank you so much for this very interesting conversation. Um, my comment is that as a geologist, and I stand in solidarity with my geology co colleagues that will hopefully <laughs> be alive a few million years from now, and these existing nuclear blasts that have, have happened in the past will provide a useful marker for my future colleagues to date the absurdity of detonating such weapons uh, in, in our present day. So hopefully this is a not only an interesting geological marker, but one also that marks the, the mindset of our civilization several million years from now. So in that sense, it's interesting. Um, my question lies in, in a statement that Catherine said. You mentioned that deterrence is defined by inflicting unacceptable damage. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on the term unacceptable, because it seems there's quite a bit of an ethical conversation that can be had there. What, that, what might be unacceptable to you might not be unacceptable to me. And so I was wondering if there's a more quantifiable avenue to define this unacceptable damage gosh that's a good question what is unacceptable unacceptable damage for me it's you know there is no acceptable damage but then i'm a peace stick so that's you know you're asking the wrong person on that one i think it's more of a kind of military term and how military the military view i, I don't know it's a difficult it's a it's a difficult question i mean and I, I would kind of quite happily throw it back to you i mean do you do you have any idea on what what you think how much damage you would find acceptable to the to the planet and or to the, to humankind just to avoid perhaps nuclear to avoid a, a nuclear winter i mean it's always the risks are so hypothetical for for everything it's so so, so difficult to actually quantify anything at all and i think it's a fairly nebulous concept for everybody no, I'm going to throw it back to you. Do you have any ideas at all about what you think is going to be uh, is unacceptable damage? I think I, I echo your thoughts that there is no such thing as an acceptable damage. I mean, any loss of life is unacceptable. Any destruction of historical or cultural artifacts, like is happening now in Iran and Iraq, is unacceptable. So the the, the concept of an acceptable damage is. I wonder if it's it doesn't even make sense to start that conversation. Oh, it any make... damage is unacceptable. Uh, also, I mean, part of this goes back to to, to Seth's um, Seth's paper. It's that um, in, that's the principle on which deterrence, the you know, the strategic the deterrence is is based. And I, I kind of I find it quite interesting Seth's paper in the sense that on the one hand, um, you've been very very clear about your support for the. Um, these nuclear abolition um, campaign, um, which is something I also absolutely fully, um, fully, fully support. But then there's a giant but, and you seem to kind of accept that there is this, um, you know, the deterrence is there. It's not going to go away. It's how states uh, see things. It's what they place their importance on, and therefore you have to um, 
meet them in their own uh, you know meet them in their own way and I and you know for me I'm kind of I find it interesting in a way I kind of want to ask do you think that while you support the movement for a ban do you think it's just not possible or or you know is 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 that your view and is that part of the reason why you've come up with the you've been sort of coming up and looking um looking into alternative options that's a that's a good question uh the the short answer is that's um kind of that's that's very much in the direction of um why i'm i'm raising this this mix of issues first i want to make a, a couple quick points in response to sanjoy uh first the uh geological marker uh, should already exist uh, from the two nuclear weapons detonations in World War II, and then uh, in particular from the approximately 2,000 uh, nuclear weapons detonations that have been conducted in testing, uh, some of which were kind of in the ocean, so there might, the markers there might not be so good, but many of those have been in land areas that might, I mean, you know the geology better than I do, but those might well exist a, a few million years from now. Um, so we actually don't need any more, or I'm pretty sure we don't need any more nuclear detonations for our, our, uh, future geologists. Although I do appreciate the thought. Um, for the record, I did not say anything about needing new blasts. <laughs> okay. To okay. Mark the record. And, and then to the, <laughs> to the, so the second question, um, as far as uh, harm being unacceptable, my my own so these are as far as what is acceptable and these are these are moral questions. Uh, my own view is I don't like to think in terms of what is or isn't acceptable. I think the less harm we have, the better, and the biggest harm that we could have is anything that threatens the entire future of, of human civilization. And so, uh, you know, to the extent that we can reasonably count all units of harm equally or, or something to that effect and we really need do need to make sure that we avoid permanent harm to, to humanity uh, now for deterrence it's not how big the harm is that matters it is the perception of it so deterrence is about convincing the other side to not do something that you don't want them to do and so it doesn't doesn't actually matter uh, how severe the harm itself would actually be. All that matters is whether it will persuade the other side to not do whatever it was trying to do. And so you can't really quantify this because it gets into details of the, you know, the, the psychology of the leadership or their decision making structure, uh, uh, things of that sort, right? If there's a, a president, like there, there's about to be a presidential election in the United States, what it takes to deter the United States may well change pending the results of this election. So you can't really quantify that so well. And that's important to recognize. That's a, another aspect of this that oh, we haven't really had the chance to get into as much in the conversation. Uh, because I agree, uh, there are reasons why uh, biological weapons might struggle to uh, uh, create a, a high degree of harm and a retaliation, and that that could make them a bad deterrent. But if they are perceived to be an effective deterrent, then that's that's actually a moot point. Um, that's that's a whole other issue that we can just lay out there. But there's not much we can say to to go into detail because that hasn't really been part of the conversation so much. With regard to Catherine's question to me about you know, how I could throw this winter safe deterrence idea out there while at the same time supporting 
the humanitarian uh, disarmament uh, initiative. Uh, uh, I, the way I phrase this in, in my uh, post to the Bolton Roundtable is that the, the humanitarian disarmament initiative, uh, nuclear disarmament initiative, it's, I, I call it a first best solution to the, the status quo nuclear weapons risk because it, um, it basically decreases the, the demand for this massively threatening deterrence. Uh, it makes it, you know, it stigmatizes it and seeks, you know, political and, and legal solutions to, to basically make it so that countries do not uh, feel the need to have deterrence based on this threat of, of really massive destruction. And so this is kind of the, the, the best case scenario would be for this to work. Uh, at the same time, and, and, and I support it because I think it's got a, a, a de- it's, you know, it's a great approach. I think it's got a decent chance of succeeding. And I think we should all do what we can to help it succeed, uh, so that we can, uh, get rid of this, this risk from the, the status quo of large nuclear arsenals without, you know, replacing with anything more destructive. However, at the same time, I worry that it might not succeed. I worry that even if they succeed in having a new treaty that bans nuclear weapons, the countries that have nuclear weapons aren't going to sign it because they insist that they still need deterrence. And so uh, given that possibility, uh, that fairly, I think, fairly likely possibility of uh, we need to be thinking about other options, which is which is where the winter safe deterrence comes in. If you know biological weapons are, are banned, and let's say that in a hypothetical world there's also a nuclear weapons ban, and most you know, nations comply with this ban, is there a third best option from nuclear weapons and biological weapons? Is there a third best option that would achieve the desired levels of deterrence? So something that I'm still working on picking apart is exactly what uh, and somebody in the comments writes water balloons. Uh, somebody on Twitter, <laughs> somebody on Twitter wrote large rocks. I thought that was that was pretty fantastic. It's it's still ambiguous in my mind exactly what destruction you have to threaten. Uh, and this is something that might not get a lot of attention because nuclear weapons cause a range of different types of destruction all at the same time. They kill. A huge number of people, they, they flatten cities, they can destroy military targets and, and government installations, all, all, uh, all with one, one weapon. And so it's, um, uh, there hasn't been much attention to like, okay, so what do you need this or that or so? Uh, cause nuclear weapons just do all of it. Uh, another one that, that I've been floating, uh, at the same level as, as non-contagious biological weapons, in fact, in some ways, even, even more prominently with it is electromagnetic weapons. Now, the, the primary type of electromagnetic weapons is, uh, to detonate nuclear weapons at high altitudes, electromagnetic pulse. Uh, what's interesting about that is electromagnetic pulse, it, the, the pulse itself doesn't harm human bodies. What it does is it, it destroys electronics. Um, and so, and it can do so over a wide area, like a significant portion of an entire continent, uh, which for kind of broad scale deterrence is, is quite useful. Um, and now at the same time, if you destroy a continent's electronics, some people will die, people in hospitals and, and probably more than that. But 
uh, and this is it's it's uncertain exactly uh, what the the human cost would be of that. However, at least hypothetically, if the human cost would be relatively small and it's just a massive economic cost, then uh, this might be a relatively attractive uh, type of deterrent because, okay, it's, it's kind of like a, a, a really large economic sanction, which is something countries do all the time, sanctions on, on Russia right now from uh, the Ukraine crisis. Uh, it's just like a, an extremely large economic sanction. Potentially, this could be an effective deterrent. Uh, it certainly works just fine in second strike retaliation, just like any you know nuclear launch can work well in, in second strike retaliation. I wonder if this is an idea that that might merit some further thought. I really don't know. Isn't it? That's clearly not my field at all. But I wonder whether or not that's be regarded as a sufficient deterrent on the basis that hard targets would have shielded shielded themselves mm-hmm. surely against that kind of against that kind of attack? Well, it's important that, uh, in particular, uh, whatever weapons would be used in retaliation be shielded from it. Otherwise, you could use this as a first strike attack, which uh, defeats the, the, the deterrence, and, and that could make, um, make actual wars more likely. Um, and so it's important that the, the retaliation mechanism, whether it's you know, a, a, another... EMP nuclear attack and reply or, or whatever it is. It's important that that be shielded. But as I understand it, it's actually quite difficult to say shield the entire country's electrical infrastructure. That might, that's probably prohibitively expensive. I could be wrong on that, but that's, that's my understanding. Uh, would you get as strong of a deterrence as what you have right now? Perhaps not. Uh, however, to threaten to send an economy back, you know, uh, uh, the entire country's economy back 200 years, I'd like to think that most countries would, would give pause before, uh, before that happens. And I, I actually, I'm imagining in my mind, like now everybody's worried because, you know, their, their smartphones aren't going to work and their computers aren't going to work and all of that stuff. It's just not going to work and it's not going to start working again for a very long time. Uh, that, that that could get a reaction. I imagine it would have at least some deterrent effect. But again, you know, deterrence it's, it's kind of in the eyes of the beholder, so so it's hard that to say for sure. It's effective to me and preferable to everybody worried about digging bomb shelters in their backyard. So you know, a, a, an economic loss versus the loss of life, I think, can certainly be effective and preferable. We definitely we're getting a little close to the end of our time, but this has been a great conversation. So. Uh, if there's any final questions from our audience members, uh, please you know ch- put them in the chat box or speak up. And then if not, you know Seth and Catherine, if you maybe just have some closing thoughts on how we should think about you know not just deterrence but just also the roles of nuclear weapons and biological weapons in the world. Uh, maybe one thing we haven't quite touched on is you know there's there are the nation players that abide by treaties uh, more or less, but then there's also terrorist organizations that have no regard for these these um, treaties. And that's one aspect where biological weapons are mm. particularly worrisome. And so to put this on the table for deterrence opens up that question of what the, these rogue players may do if, if access to such weapons becomes uh, more available. So that's a big can of worms. We don't have to, <laughs> you know, we don't have to unpack the whole thing. But, um, you know, if you could just mention a little bit what your thoughts are on that. 
Dave Dangenberger. Um, I'd just like to uh, follow up on uh, Seth's point of deterrence might be in the in the perception and how I believe only five people died from uh, the anthrax attacks in early 2000s. Um, so if if people are sufficiently scared of something like that, maybe it would be 50 people or 500 people that would be sufficient det deterrence, but that would still be many, many orders of magnitude lower impact than something like nuclear winter. And, and also I was going to ask uh, Catherine, in, in the case of non-contagious, like anthrax, would you still describe that as uh, indiscriminate? Is that the word you used? Yeah, 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 we do. Um, the problem is, the problem is this, that when we're talking about such, you know, non-contagious agents like anthrax, or you're talking about toxins like violent botulinum or something like that. Yes, they don't replicate, and they're not going, they're not going to, they're not going to spread out. But you've got a serious problem, first of all, in delivering it to to your actual target. So. In that way, it, they are indiscriminate. The only way you can actually deliver them to your uh, to your targeted population is by aerosolization. So how you and then you've got all of the other factors, wind factor and what have you like that. So in many ways, yes, it is indiscriminate. And and you know we're not talking genetic weapons here, so you you're not just indiscriminate. Also applies to the fact that it's against civilian population as opposed to just a military population. So that that was the context in which I was using the word. Um, indiscriminate. Uh, with regards to, I mean, and, and what you were saying about anthrax and how many people in the anthrax attacks had, had actually died. Um, yes, there's definitely, um, when you use something like that, there's definitely less of a order of magnitude in the loss of human life. And obviously, for Seth's um, sort of pur purposes, this is, you know, this is a more attractive, this is a more attractive um, property but the problem is is that when you start going down this road and you legitimize the use of these kind of weapons and then particularly let's add in you know i'll, I'll go out and add in the whole um non-state actor thing into this as well um if they are deemed attractive by by governments then other um other countries are going to go looking for, uh, uh, are going to go and and look for them and then you the whole thing is going to escalate and you can't stop them and if you've got no treaty underpinning it because it's been overturned uh there's no way of actually telling what research people are actually doing which only then fuels this sort of the secrecy and clandestine only then fuels a further race or arms race on the biological weapons front and you've got non-state actors who are um, seeing that go um, seeing that nations are pursuing these weapons and therefore they become more attractive for them because biological weapons in some ways are much more easily and cheaply developed you know and they and they have non-state actors have um, tried to get biological weapons and, and use biological weapons before not terribly well but they've done it so for us it's just this when I don't think in any way at all I'm claiming that biological weapons are more dangerous um, or have higher risk than nu than a possible nuclear winter in some ways, I find it quite incredible that you um, that we could advocate opening this Pandora's box. We don't know what's we don't know what's in there. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what science and technology, um, the advances in life sciences, are going are going to make possible. And it could be an absolute catastrophe. And we're kind of doing it on the off chance that states will go, states will stick with it and not suddenly say, "Oh, hey, we've opened Pandora's box." We've got all of these these new tools. They're far more easily proliferated. But we've actually decided, you know what, that nuclear weapons 
are um, probably better than biological weapons as it happens. And then perhaps they go back to nuclear weapons. So not only have we overturned biological we- uh, the, the ban on biological weapons, um, made it much more made it much easier probably actually made them far more lethal but then who's to say that at any point in time that we're going to have like biological weapons out there and then that we've traded it off for for nuclear weapons and that any of the states are going to stick to 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 not pursuing nuclear weapons we'll end up with both and this is my worst worst case scenario and i realize i'm ranting so i apologize (laughs) um but you know, this is kind of how your mind goes. That everything just escalates and escalates. And you know, if you do, if if you pursue one and you legitimise pursuing one, I kind of you know, I don't know. It's very riskful for me. I can't sort of you know, I kind of want to say take no taxis, backsies. You know, we have this great global global norm. It's the the norm has been there and developing over literally millennia. And on the off chance that states might say, hey, you know, these could be fairly good at deterrence, but we're not really sure. We don't think so, but hey, let's give it a go. Um, We just, you know, for me, it's not, I I don't think it's worth the risk, but obviously um, I'm not a fan of nuclear winter either, but for me, it's just not worth the risk. Okay, so I'll just say in in, uh, uh, some, some quick closing remarks that, these are all uh, very important details that I'm glad are entering into the conversation about winter safety. So I, I can just reemphasize, as I mentioned before, that my own research on this is preliminary. It's initial. It did not have the opportunity to, to untangle and pack all of these really very important details. I certainly agree that pursuing some types of weapons, potentially in, including the non-contagious biological weapons could be counterproductive, could make things worse, in which case, of course, we should not go down that path. And uh, I have no specific points of disagreement for, for what Catherine's just, just said. Uh, this is why I'm glad that we are having this conversation so that we can tease out these details and avoid the international community making any mistakes. And so to that effect, Jacob, Thank you for, for having both of us here for the, the discussion. I think it's been a, a good conversation, and, and I'm glad that uh, we've been able to have a productive, open conversation about these really difficult, difficult issues, both here and, and online. Thank you, Seth. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Catherine, for joining us. I've enjoyed Thank this. You. <clears throat> Thank you. So listeners, I encourage you again, please send us your beverage suggestions at podcast at bmsis.org. You can listen to previous episodes of our podcast at bmsis.org slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Blue Psycon. We'll see you again next time. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.